When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. And then you have this prayer. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. There's a sense in which these words, the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, is a description of revival days. It's a time of turning. It's a time of moving. It's a time of things being altered. In our series on the subject of revival, we have been looking at some of the terms that the Bible uses and some that have been used in history to describe it. I won't go over those terms again, but you will know that when it speaks of something being revived, there is the thought of quickening, enlivening, sharpening. There is a thought there of that which can only be explained in times of revival as a work of the Spirit. We did consider a number of examples of what we read in Acts chapter 3 verse 19 as times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. We talked about that which happened in scriptural or sacred history and in subsequent history in church history. Uh, We have spoken quite generally about what revival is and we've also given something of a general account of some of the major revivals of church history. But what I want to do today is to speak about some of the features of revival days by using examples, thrilling accounts that have been left to us by men of God in the past. There's a scripture that I referred to in previous messages, I want to mention it again, that is very appropriate to this message. And it's Psalm 44 verse 1. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what work Thou didst in their days in the times of old. And essentially, this is what we have to go on as Christians in the 21st century. What our fathers, our forefathers have told us. What has been written. Those accounts of revival that are extant from former days, some of those days were hundreds of years ago. But they're thrilling accounts of what God did at a certain time in a certain place in history. Psalm 85 verse 6 contains the prayer, which I believe we can still pray. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Notice that, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Revival essentially, in the first instance, has to do with the Lord's people. And when revival comes, there is joy that comes in its wake. There is real joy 
There is real delight among the people of God when they are visited in a special manner by the Spirit of God. Revival times are seasons of great joy and delight for the church of Jesus Christ. In the days of Hezekiah, when the Lord visited the people, the Bible records in Second Chronicles 29.36 that the people rejoiced for the thing was done suddenly. Don't we find as well in that wonderful New Testament example of revival in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that the very same effect was felt among the people. Acts 2 verse 46 They continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There was joy when the Lord visited the church. And there are some really thrilling accounts of happenings that took place during seasons of revival. They're recorded in some narratives penned by men who lived in those days and experienced those blessings. We can, as we look at these history books, when we think about all of these true revivals, note some powerful effects which were produced by the Spirit of the Lord. We can mark certain notable fruits which accompanied every real move of God. I've been perusing some of my books in my library again that speak of days of revival. In one particular volume that I have, in speaking of the 59 revival in Ulster, in my homeland, one minister by the name of Rogers gave this testimony of that time. Multitudes who never attended a place of worship in times past now rush to every meeting and can with difficulty be got to leave. In my own congregation, we have men who had grown grey in the neglect of ordinances who are now waiting regularly and with all attention and seriousness on the means of grace. The appearance of the congregation is entirely changed. They come into the sanctuary as a people prepared for the Lord and the attention paid to the word and the spirit of the worship are as different as it is possible to conceive. The singing, for example, is like the sound of many waters. But that man not only gave a testimony of what happened in the church, he talked about what happened in society. I quote, Drunkards have become sober. Profligates have turned into the fold of Jesus. Worldlings have ceased to go on their knees to gold and now worship the living and true God. Swearers have ceased to burn their lips with blasphemy. Some publicans, he's referring there to tavern owners, have given up their unsanctified calling. 
Altars are created in families where no incense burned for years. Ceremonial professors have thrown aside aids in family, to family devotion and refuse now to be hampered by forms of prayer, but give vent to the simple feelings of their souls at the throne of grace. Our churches are crowded with eager worshippers who now understand what we mean when we preach on Christian experience. Prayer meetings are frequented thrice a day still in the city. Bible classes are now of unwieldy size and are more like what our congregations used to be. Our Sabbath schools, Sunday schools, are nearly doubled. And in short, there is now everywhere a reality in worship and in life. In one parish in Ulster, the testimony was that prayer meetings multiplied and conversions were a daily occurrence until Ulster was manifestly ablaze with holy fire. In the parish of Connor, there were at least 100 prayer meetings going on week by week. This is a very rural part of Northern Ireland. 100 prayer meetings. From Connor as a centre, district after district became influenced by the revival movement. The revival spread in mighty power all over the north of Ireland. From first to last, the revival was a record of answered prayer. Never was there such a time of secret and public prayer. 1859 is remembered as the preeminent year of grace. It is estimated, the writer said, that approximately 100,000 souls were saved in Ulster as a result of the 1859 awakening. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. There is a booklet that I have it was written by a minister in 1859 he ministered in Balamina the Reverend Samuel Moore and among the other things that he said Moore testified concerning the change that was wrought by the Spirit of God in Ulster the mouths that bellowed forth cursing and blasphemy now praise and bless God's holy name the Sabbath breaker remembers and keeps holy the Lord's day. The impure have abandoned their pollutions. The drunkard is sober, notwithstanding fiendish temptations from old acquaintances. Some publicans have abandoned their business. Sabbath schools, prayer meetings, houses of worship are overcrowded. Many ministers and members of the church, many parents and Sunday school teachers are revived. Greatly refreshed, more loving, earnest and diligent. Good books and tracts are in great demand. Many, very many, pray who were never known to do so before. Generosity to the cause of Christ is on the increase. The victims of the apostasy are alarmed. The godless multitude are awed into solemnity. And he went on to speak of Balamina, his hometown, 
that changed lives of thousands in this town and in the neighbouring towns and districts testify to the truthfulness of the representation now given as to the results of the revival. You know, friends, the experiences of revival days are thrilling. They're thrilling still to read about. My heart leaps when I read things like this about places that I know very well. Places that I have frequented during my lifetime. When I read of the things that God did in those places, it makes me to pray, Lord, do this again. Do it again. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. I think that describes very well many of those who lived during revival days. It was like being in a beautiful dream. Where everything is changed. Where God is at work. Now there are a number of features of revival that I could point out to you today. And I want to just mention three this morning. Of the chief features of revival times. And already I have in these extracts pointed out one of those. In times of revival, one of the features of that time is great praying. Great praying. It's not that people say their prayers. It's that people really pray. Now I'm always interested when I read in the scripture about the testimony of Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. Remember when he was converted in Acts chapter 9, he was blinded for a few days because of the light of the sun. He went into a place being led by the hand where he met a man called Ananias. And the Lord directed Ananias to Saul of Tarsus. The Bible tells us that when the Lord spoke to him, Acts 9 verse 11, He said, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. For behold, he prayeth. Or look, he's praying. Now if you knew Saul of Tarsus and his background, you would have thought, well that's nothing new. Saul of Tarsus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a very religious man. He would have said his prayers all the time. He was one of those who would give tithes of all that he possessed. He would have fasted twice in the week. He would have been a man who said prayers all the time. So what does the Lord mean when he says to Ananias, Behold, he prayeth because... Something had happened in the heart of Saul where he stopped saying prayers and he started to pray. Now he's really in communion with God. Now he really knows the Lord. And that's what happens when revival comes. Every revival is born in prayer. Just check it out as you read church history books. Every revival is not only born in prayer, it has been sustained by prayer, and it is always followed by prayer. 
Prayer is one of the greatest features of revival times. We need to look no further than the scripture itself. In Acts chapter 1, there was a prayer meeting taking place. The Bible tells us who was there. <clears throat> All the names of the apostles that remained apart from Judas... Acts chapter 1 verse 13, then verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. And it tells us in the next verse, 15, in brackets, the number of names together were about 120. So this is the entire church there at Jerusalem met. And what are they doing? They're praying. They're having a prayer meeting. And it was at that prayer meeting, Acts chapter 2 records, when the day of Pentecost was fully come and they were all with one accord in that one place, that suddenly there came a sound from heaven. The Spirit of God descended upon that prayer meeting. But as they prayed in the upper room, and God moved by His Spirit, it led on to more prayer and more earnest seeking of the face of the Lord. This was not the only prayer meeting This was just the beginning of a great volume of prayer rising up to the Lord. We find in Acts chapter number 4 that they are met together again in prayer. And you can read their prayer toward the end of that chapter. And here's what it says about what happened as a result of that praying. Acts 4 and verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. And that praying continued. You know, friends, there is no such thing as a prayerless revival. There's no such thing. Again, to quote the Reverend Samuel Moore, I thought this was remarkable. He was referring again to the town of Balamina. In this town at present, at public worship on the Sabbath, the churches are thronged. Pews, alleys and vestibules. The open air services, whether in town or country, on any evening of the week are attended by thousands. And these services, though so numerous, are often not far distant from each other. Then he says this. Our congregational weekly prayer meeting was attended by some 50 persons ordinarily. During the past month, whether it was held four times or seven times a week, it was attended by more than 20 times that number. You know, 20 times 50 is a thousand. The prayer meeting went from 50 people to a thousand. He said the difficulty used to be to get the people into church. Now the difficulty is to get them out of it. One night and morning, we had three services. The first of these services was three and a half hours. And Moore went on to say, I pronounced the benediction intending to dismiss the people. But no, they kept possession. Only a very few left. After half an hour, we engaged in prayer and praise again. I pronounced the benediction 
intending to dismiss the people. But no, they still kept possession. Only a few left. And this went on for hours. Great praying. Moore went on to speak about the fact that prayer meetings were very numerous in town and country and were well attended. He said this, Within the bounds of the Connor congregation, I'm informed that there are 100 prayer meetings every week. A few months ago, the bellowing of anger, cursing, blasphemy resounded along the roads from parties returning from the markets. Especially on Saturday night and sometimes on Sabbath morning. And I've heard that kind of thing, and so have you. People are going home from pubs and clubs and places of ill repute. People are going home and they're cursing and swearing and singing and making a loud noise. That was happening way back then in the mid-1800s. Now he says, The sweet service of sacred song is heard floating on the night air from persons returning home from the prayer meetings. What an amazing thing when God begins to move. At the height of the 59 revival, there was a testimony that the whole country was studded with prayer meetings. But think about Scotland then in 1839. This is before the 59 revival, 20 years before it in Northern Ireland. You had this move of God in 1839 in Dundee. That was a time when Robert Murray McShane, of whom you've heard me speak often, was convalescing in the Holy Land. He wasn't well. He went over to Israel to get some sun on his back and just to rest. While he was gone, a young man who later became a missionary to China, and actually was buried in China, William Chalmers Burns, whose father had seen revival in his own ministry in a place called Kilsyth, was preaching as the substitute preacher in Dundee. Most people would have said a young fellow like that was nowhere near the preacher that McShane was. But during his tenure there in those weeks, God visited the St. Peter's congregation in Dundee. And when McShane returned, there were 39 prayer meetings being held in his congregation every week. 39 prayer meetings. Five of them conducted solely by children. You know, everywhere touched by a revival has seen a great increase in meetings for prayer, but also an increase in private and family prayer. A desire for prayer. And especially a desire for prayer amongst the young seemed to be a prominent feature of revival days. There were children in schools, in day schools, grade schools you would call it, Asking their teachers if they could start prayer meetings. I have a booklet here which I love to read by the Reverend Henry Montgomery. It's called The Children in 59. It is a record of what God did among children and youth in the 1859 revival. He commented that while a great many grown-up people were converted to God, young people were especially blessed. And the boys and girls were mightily used of God in that time of revival. 
He commented, the Bible says, Suffer or allow little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Montgomery says, Whenever the good spirit therefore is at work in the hearts of the people, it will not be surprising to learn that the children have been deeply moved and are earnestly seeking the Savior. He speaks of the great revival in 59, commencing at Kells and Connor and County Antrim, and pointed out that it was a prayer meeting that was begun in connection with a Sabbath school prayer meeting. They were praying for the Sunday school. That prayer meeting started in 1855, continued until the Great Awakening broke over Ulster in 1859, and multitudes were born into God's kingdom. Now listen to this. A good man describes how the work began among the children in cold rain, which is in the northern part of Northern Ireland. He speaks about a day school. This is a grade school. In it, in this school, a boy was observed under deep impressions. The master, that's the teacher, seeing that the little fellow was not fit to do his work, called him to him and advised him to go home and call upon the Lord in private. You'd hardly find too many school teachers doing that today, would you? With him he sent an older boy who had found peace with God the day before. On their way, they saw an empty house. And these two boys went in there to pray together. The two schoolfellows continued in prayer until he who was weary and heavy laden felt his soul blessed with sacred peace. Rejoicing in this new and strange blessedness, the little fellow said, I must go back and tell Mr. whatever his name was, the teacher, the boy who a little while ago had been too sorrowful to do his schoolwork, soon entered the school with a beaming face, and going up to the schoolmaster said in his simple way, Oh, Mr. A, I am so happy. I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. The attention of the old school was attracted. Boy after boy silently slipped out of the room. After a while, the schoolmaster stood on something which enabled him to look over the wall of the playground. There he saw a number of these boys ranged around the wall on their knees in earnest prayer, everyone apart. The scene overcame him. Presently he turned to the pupil who had already been a comforter to one schoolfellow and he said, Do you think you can go and pray with these boys? He went out and kneeling down among them, began to implore the Lord to forgive their sins for the sake of him who had borne them all upon the cross. Their silent grief soon broke into a bitter cry. As this reached the ears of the boys in the room, it seemed to pierce their hearts and as by one consent they cast themselves upon their knees and began to cry for mercy. The girls' school was above, and the cry no sooner penetrated to their room than apparently well knowing what morning it was, and hearing in it a call to themselves, they too fell upon their knees and wept. Strange disorder for the schoolmaster and schoolmistress to have to control, Montgomery said. He went on to talk about how that at that time children would gather together to pray by themselves for their unconverted playmates. 
And in one of the meetings of the kind, of that kind, when a little boy was praying, a little girl began to ask the Lord for mercy. When the lad who was praying heard this, he said to a companion, God sooner far hears us we fellows than he does big men. And verily we may believe that this is often true. A children's meeting was held for a long time in the barn of one of the elders of the congregation of Ballykelly, which is also in that neighbourhood, which the late Dr. Killen describes as an attendance of about 20 of the lambs of the flock. This is a children's meeting in a barn. It had met several times before he was aware of his existence, and he tells of what a little boy, eight years of age, who had left, who had been left at home on the Sabbath, to watch the cows while the others went to public worship. He said to his mother, Mama, we had a fine day today. What were you doing, dear? asked the mother, expecting to hear of some childish place. Oh, replied the boy, so-and-so came, mentioning some of his companions, and we had a prayer meeting on the roadside. Children. Little Children. And I could go on just reading these thrilling accounts of what the Lord did among the boys and girls. You know, the Lord is able to do similar things today. And yet we say that and we feel the unbelief rising up on our own hearts, don't we? At least I do. I think about what happened in the 1741 and 1742 revival at Cambuslang in Scotland. Some of the accounts of what God did at that time are absolutely amazing. Where permittings swelled to unbelievable sizes. Because people just all of a sudden began to seek the face of the Lord. There's a wonderful book that was written by a man called William Gibson about the 59 revival and Gibson testified in that book concerning some of the things that he saw even in his own ministry increased attendance at prayer meetings far more prayer meetings held and these are marks of revival days yet today folks there are Evangelical churches, professedly Bible-believing churches, fundamentalist churches, even Reformed churches, and they don't have a prayer meeting. There are some churches have what they call the midweek service, but it's a preaching service only. And the minister will have a number of requests that has been given ahead of time. And he will utter a prayer mentioning those things and then the folks are dismissed. And that's what they call a prayer meeting. That's not a prayer meeting. What has happened to churches? What has happened to the Lord's people? I mean, you look at the promises of God in Scripture that are annexed to prayer. Things that God says about what will happen when we pray. Why don't we pray more? Why don't we desire prayer? What is it that causes people to have no interest whatsoever 
in seeking the face of God, though they profess to be the Lord's. When my dad got saved, his normal behavior was to go to public houses and taverns with his friends, or to meet with his friends for drinking and gambling sessions with cards and dominoes, etc., etc. He had zero interest in the things of God. My father didn't go to church. He was married to a woman who was religious. My mother went to a Presbyterian church, but she may as well not have bothered because the man who was the minister didn't preach the gospel. But she was very religious. Dad didn't go to church. He wasn't interested in church. He was interested in the normal things that worldly people are interested in. But guess what happened on the 26th of February 1951? Everything changed. Or sorry, 1956. 26th of February 1956. Everything changed. From that night... No more pubs. No more meeting with the friends to drink and to gamble. No more of the worldly activities. Now what's he doing? He's looking for the nearest prayer meeting. Dr. McClelland, who ministered for many years, is a retired minister in Toronto, has told me many, many times of how as a boy... He would see my father walking down the road with a big Bible under his arm and it brought conviction upon his heart. He knew what had happened. The Lord had done a work in his heart. I know it's a personal reference and it involves my family. But I could use that example for many other people. Never mind my dad. When people get saved, one of the first things they ought to desire is prayer. Saul of Tarsus teaches us that, doesn't he? Behold, he prayeth. Ananias, you want to know whether Saul of Tarsus is really saved or not? Look, he's praying. That's the evidence. He's praying. He now communes with God. And people living in periods of revival have enjoyed an increase in the volume of prayer. Matthew Henry used to say, We can't make revival to come any more than we can make the wind to blow. He said, but though we cannot make the wind to blow, we can set the sails of our ship to catch the wind when it does blow. Great praying. What about great preaching? Oh, great preaching is a feature of revival times. And what's interesting to me is that very often the sermons that were preached were not the greatest sermons ever heard. Nor were some of the ministers involved the greatest of pulpiteers. You might wonder, well, why would that be? Wouldn't God delight to use mighty preachers? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and read from verse 27. And this ought to encourage every believer who feels that they really aren't all that great at doing whatever it is that they do. Sometimes we're down on ourselves and quite rightly so. Because there's nothing to boast in. But here's a great encouragement for you. When you don't feel like you could really do very much for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the, the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in His presence. That's why. Those people who think they're big shakes, they're nothing. People who think that they are really something, they're nothing. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. I have a book on the Cambuslang Revival and the ministry of William McCulloch by McFarlane. In that book, McFarlane says the following. All the accounts that we have seen of William McCulloch unite in describing him as able, judicious and faithful, yet no way distinguished as a popular preacher. His son says of his father, he was not a very ready speaker. Though eminent for learning and piety, he was not eloquent. His manner was slow and cautious, very different from that of popular orators. And McFarlane goes on to say, in his ministry there was really nothing on account of which the most observant could have said, God will yet employ that man in doing great things. You see... There was nothing special about William McCulloch outwardly. Nobody thought he was any great shakes as a preacher. But God mightily used him. In a former message I mentioned William Glendinning. He's a man of six mile water revival fame. He was no outstanding preacher. In fact, it was said by his contemporaries that he seemed only in his preaching to dwell on terrors of the law in his sermons. But God used him as his instrument. God used him. The greatness of the preaching of revival days is due to something else. It's the mighty influence of the Spirit of God. That's it. The preaching meetings were crammed with hearers. There was a hunger and a thirst for the preached word in those revival times. There was a man famous in Ulster as a preacher, the Reverend Hugh Hannah. He was known as Roaring Hannah. Must have been the way he preached. But he said of the 59 revival, there is probably no evangelical church in the town where the attendance is not greatly increased at all the services. It was somewhat difficult once to get the ear of the people for the gospel, but it's open now and hearts are open as well. Wherever a minister chooses, he may have a congregation in a short time, the great majority of whom will listen to him with the most reverent attention. People interested in the word of God. These are all 
true things. When God works, there's great praying. When God works, he works through great preaching. And when I say great preaching, I have already qualified that by saying it doesn't have to be through someone who is looked upon as a great preacher. But it's great preaching because it's preaching in the power of the Spirit. That's what we need. That's what we need. We need the Holy Ghost to be in the preaching. We need the Spirit of God to be in the preaching. I remember well when I was in Bible school a story being told to us in the church history class of a young man who was preaching before a very august body of ministers. And he knew that he was going to be preaching before these mighty men. And so he put all the preparation that he could into that sermon, which is a good thing. But he came armed with this manuscript and he was going to really preach that day. When he finished preaching, one of those elder statesmen of the church came to him and he said, young man, and listed all the great things about his sermon. It had this, it had that, it had the other thing. And the young man was feeling increasingly good about this as the old minister spoke until the punchline. But he said, young man, one thing it hath not. The Spirit of God. Let the air out of his balloon. You know, it's interesting in Nehemiah chapter 8, you read in the early verses, verses 2 through 4, that people stood in the days of Ezra for hours and hours to hear the law of God being read. I know they didn't have watches in those days, but if they did, they wouldn't have been sitting, looking at their watch, or wondering when they were going to get out. You know, every single revival that I've ever read about that has been a true revival has been one in which the word preached has been a great feature. I mentioned George Whitfield at Canvas Line. He preached, according to accounts, at 10 o'clock at night in the churchyard. That's the graveyard. But get this, it was in the pouring rain. Ten o'clock at night, in the pouring rain, and there were thousands of people listening to him preaching. And there was a great awakening. And many were converted. Nowadays we meet in heated buildings with all the comforts. And you couldn't beat people into church. They have no interest in hearing the word. What would it be like to see 30,000 people, not gather at a ball game, but listening intently to the pure word of God preached in the power of the Spirit, such as at Cambus Lang, or as at Belfast in 1859, when the prayer gathering in Botanic Gardens was numbered anywhere between 20 and 40,000 people. Great preaching. Oh, we need the Lord to visit the church. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Wouldn't it be wonderful 
that they start saying among the heathen, not among Christians, but among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. And then we in turn can reply and say, as the psalmist did here, the Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Great praying, great preaching. Let me finish with this. In days of revival, one of the features of such days was great praise. Great praise. Look at Psalm 126 verse 2. Again, if we apply this to revival times, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Days of revival are characterized by the praise of God. Real, genuine praise. Not singing little ditties for ten minutes with one line in a hypnotic type atmosphere. But real praise, real singing. It has been said that under Whitfield and Wesley, the revivals that they saw were born in song. That was true also of the Ulster Awakening. The Psalms of David were constantly in use at that time. One writer on the 2nd of June 1859 said this, Listen, the 23rd Psalm, the 40th Psalm and the 116th Psalm seemed to be psalms of power in the hands of the Spirit in imparting indescribable joy. They are heard at the midnight hour, sung by bands of persons old and young, returning from their prayer meetings. Old martyrdom, the tune, thus accompanied and thus heard at twelve o'clock on the midnight breeze, has a wonderfully solemnizing influence. The paraphrases were sung. And a favorite hymn of the revival was called, What's the News? Here's a couple of verses. Whenever, wherever we meet, you always say, what's the news? What's the news? Pray, what's the order of the day? What's the news? What's the news? Oh, I have got good news to tell. My Savior hath done all things well and triumphed over death and hell. That's the news. That's the news. See how gospel-centered their singing was? The Lamb was slain on Calvary. That's the news. That's the news. To set a world of sinners free. That's the news. That's the news. Twas there His precious blood was shed. Twas there He bowed His sacred head. But now He's risen from the dead. That's the news. That's the news. Whenever true revival comes, one feature of it is that the Lord gets all the glory. All of it. People don't talk about personalities. They don't talk about ministers. They talk about the Lord. His name receives all the praise. That happened on the day of Pentecost. Check it out. They were praising the Lord. They were honoring His name. The young converts at the time of the 59 revival used to burst into song everywhere, apparently. They used to sing going to the meetings and they would sing as they returned from the meetings. They sang in private and they sang in public. Why? Because the Lord had put a new song into their mouth. Even praise unto God. 
They sang because they couldn't be silent. And a Reverend McPherson said, The frequent singing of evangelical songs, both in worship and for mutual edification, is one of the legacies of the revival in 1859-60. Great praise. See, the Lord gets all the glory when revival comes. Again, as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 puts it, that no flesh should glory in His presence. One minister said, Revival essentially is when man retreats because God has taken the field. Oh, that our focus would be on the Lord. Oh, that we would see these times of great praying. These times of spirit-anointed preaching. These times of genuine spiritual praising of the Lord by multitudes of new converts who have a song in their hearts that they never had before. And they cannot be silent because the Lord has done a work within their hearts. The Lord hath done great things for us. Whereof we are glad. May the Lord answer this prayer. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south.